Uh, we're doing a series right now called Ignorant. Ignorant's not a bad word. Ignorant just means, oh, I didn't know that. That's ignorant. It's not that you're dumb or your IQ is low. It's, I didn't know that. So what we've been trying to work through is some topics that are more relevant maybe to what's happening in our, in our world. So we looked at the conversations that now take place, and most of them are built around critical theory or cultural Marxism. And what that means is this, the world is now being framed in different words than it was a decade ago. And it's being framed now in this word, the words of oppressor and oppressed. So then you can't have a right conversation with somebody if they deem you an oppressor. So if you're heteronormative, cisgender, male, white, you no longer have a voice, we're going to shout you down. That's because it's being framed in oppressor versus oppressed. And that's really taking root in much of the conversation that happens. And we have to realize that and know that when you talk with people, that's the language that they're using. So that's how we started. And we looked at homosexuality, a hot button topic. It's also kind of in that same genre. Then transgender, we looked at what sin is. We looked at what scriptures are, like what is this book that we hold? Um, we looked at last week, forgiveness. And I would say this, those other messages are interesting and maybe titillating. Forgiveness, if you get forgiveness, you're set free. It will be the most important lesson you can ever learn. And I'm talking about reconciliation, which is a different topic. I'm talking about the ability for you to stop letting, have, stop letting people have rent in your brain for free. Like, you don't belong here anymore. I've forgiven that. All has been forgiven. And I'm letting that thing go. It will set you free. Right? So that's what we've been doing. Today, we're looking at a topic that the Bible says, don't be ignorant of this. It's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. And Paul there, the author, says, hey, now concerning spirituals, which is the spirit, if you would, spiritual stuff, and you keep reading that text, that's what it's talking about. I don't want you to be uninformed, or I don't want you to be ignorant. So the Bible is saying, on this topic, capital S, spirit, I don't want you to be ignorant. You should know this. And I'm going to guess that many of you are churched. So whenever the topic of God's spirit comes up, there can be a couple of reactions. For some, you go into PTSD. Like, oh no, it is going to get weird. Okay, listen, I will only be handling one rattlesnake today. That's it. <laughs> All right, and then on the other side, it's people like, yes. And right now, you're itching to go out to your car and get your tambourine and your flag because we're going to throw down today with a Holy Spirit hoedown, right? So that's the other side. Now, all of us have a background. And like we're this non-denominational church, which means we kind of open up to anyone. So that means everybody comes in from really different paradigms. People that grew up Calvary Chapel. People that grew up charismatic. People that grew up Baptist. People that grew up Pentecostal. Or the best, Bapticostals. They're awesome. Right? Or Lutherans, or Methodists, or Catholics, or Assemblies of God, or Nazarenes. Did I miss anybody? Mormons. Yeah. Welcome. Maybe pagans. Maybe there's some pagans in here. Some 
conga banging, bonfire dancing pagans. <laughs> Welcome to Edgewater. <laughs> right, so we all come in with a, a mindset of the way things are supposed to be in God's spirit, all right? Well, I'll tell you this. Today, I won't be handling any rattlesnakes. We'll see about that next week. I have to really pray, should I? But here's what I have seen in 47 years of walking out my faith in different churches and all that. What I've noticed is this. A lot of times, the way that we view God's spirit is more of a rebellion against what we grew up with than a theological conviction. So I grew up in a, let's say, hyper-Pentecostal church, and because of that, I'm like, you guys were all faking it, that's weird, I'm gonna be an Anglican. Just sit there, robes, simplicity. Or other people grew up in a very conservative church, the Holy Spirit was never mentioned, they push off of that, and they're like, I just want freedom, I wanna go crazy, I wanna speak in tongues, so then they push off that. But it's not a theology that's actually driving it, it's more just rebellion almost. Because most of us, at our core, have a little rebellion in us. And so that really moves people. And then what happens is this. We take a theology of God's spirit from two primary texts. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, God's spirit comes, wind, fire, tongues, 3,000 get saved. And then the other text we take is the book of 1 Corinthians, the crazy church. So those two texts, minor texts, drive the theology of God's spirit. Here's what that's like. That'd be like somebody going and only visiting Portland and then saying, oh, I know what Oregon's all about. <laughs> what would you say to them? You know weird, you don't know Oregon, right? There's a massive part of Oregon that is nothing like Portland. Okay, it's the same idea. Like, wh why do we zero down on these two texts when there is a massive amount of doctrine in the Bible about God's spirit? And I think if you read Acts chapter two, which I recommend, you actually see what I'm talking about right there. So God's spirit comes on the early church. There's tongues of fire. There's rushing wind. They go out into the, the city square and they begin to speak and everybody understands them in their own languages, right? The gift of tongues. And the natives are watching these 120 people and they're looking at them and they go, are these guys drunk? And what does Peter say? No, we're not drunk. Rather, this is what the spirit through the prophet Joel said would happen. What does that tell us right there? It tells us that the Jewish believers already had a file in their head for how the Spirit would work from the Old Testament. And we ignore that all the time. I think we need you as believers recover the Old Testament file that believers had before Pentecost, before the church at Corinth, and say, what's a broader theology of how God's Spirit works? And that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. We're just going to talk Old Testament Spirit. Now, two kind of rules before we do that, two doctrines. Number one, Hebrews 13, 8 says this. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, God in the flesh, 
is unchanging, right? That's where we get that doctrine that God is not changing. Now, God doesn't change, but does that mean God always acts the same way? No. Genesis 1, what does God do during that whole chapter? Creates, right? Creates animals, creates plants, creates the fish of the sea, whales, creates. Is God right now creating new animals? Do you ever walk out of your house and you're like, oh my goodness, a snuffleupagus. Wow, how awesome. Oh, look, a dragon. Oh my goodness. Oh, a unicorn. Yes, I knew they were real. Oh, a leprechaun. How cool. No. Bigfoot. Look at him. No. I don't care if you've seen him. No. <laughs> right? God sees that creative kind of work, but that doesn't mean he's not changing. Right? Does that make sense? The second thing to get is this. The Spirit is God. It's not use the force, Luke. It's not some kind of power. The Spirit is God. We are Trinitarian. I don't have time to delve into that whole topic, but that's just what we are. We believe there is one God in three persons. And yeah, there's all these kind of ways that people try to explain it. God's like an egg. There's a hard shell and there's a yolk and there's a white yeah. God's like water, you know, there's ice and there's liquid and there's steam. Ah. No, you're never going to wrap your head around the Trinity because God is indescribably mysterious. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how high my thoughts are above yours. God is indescribably mysterious. And if we try to take away the mystery of God, we end up with something that's not faith anymore. So there are some level that Christians just say, by faith, I accept this. By faith. All right, so the spirit. What we're gonna learn about the spirit in the Old Testament, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, guess what that means about the spirit today? He's the same. We're not studying a different spirit. We're studying the spirit who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, so let's launch. Where is the first time God's spirit appears in the Bible? Genesis 1. How many times in this ignorant series have we begun our study in Genesis 1? How important is that chapter? All right, so turn with me to Genesis 1 as we see the first appearing of God's spirit. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Ruach, that word spirit in the Hebrew is Ruach, and it has this metaphor. The first time we meet the spirit, it's a metaphor of a flapping bird of prey looking down at earth. And earth is formless. It's chaotic. Earth is lifeless. It's void. And earth is dark. So you have this formless, lifeless, dark thing called earth and it draws the power of God's spirit over it and it begins to like 
peer down, focus in on it, which tells me something about God's spirit. That God's spirit is drawn to dark, chaotic, lifeless things. Praise God for that, because that was most of us at some point. And then what you see is this. You see God's spirit begins to work, right? So darkness, does anyone here like darkness? Have you ever like watched a zombie movie late at night and then for some reason you have to go outside? Were you ever afraid? Like normally you're not afraid, but you just watch a zombie movie and you're like, you go outside and you're afraid? You, not me, I'm not afraid at all. I, no problem, right? What's, what is that? It's darkness, does something to us. So what the Spirit is saying right here, what the Bible is saying right here is, earth was not a good place to be. It's a scary place. It's frightening. It's void. And then as you keep reading Genesis, here's what you see. The lights get turned on. Let there be light. Darkness is gone. And then you see, step by step, order out of chaos. And then step by step, life. More life, tons of life. That there is a creation of a good place called Eden, the Garden of Eden, literally the Garden of Delight, that God then creates for his people to live in. Oh, that's huge to me. The very first time we meet God's spirit, he's hovering over dark, formless, chaotic waters, and then slowly but surely he brings order and light and life to that place. That's exactly what he does in the light or in the life of believers. He hovers over that which is dark and brings light to it. He hovers over our chaos of life, the chaos that we've created in ourselves, in our families, in our relationships, and he says, "Let me order that for you." He takes what was lifeless in us and breathes into it his life. That's the very first thing you see. How amazing is that? Right? It's brilliant. And I think if you begin to think through these lines of what God's spirit does, that we are image bearers of God. And so each of us has this resonance with God's spirit. And what you'll find in most people is their greatest meaning in life is when they do the same things as God. When they take things that are chaotic and they bring order to it, like Genesis 1. So the businessman, he takes this idea, this chaotic idea, and he grabs some, some workers that are a little bit wily because they're from Grant's Pass. So they're wily. And then he has a vision and he orders them and they begin to do production. And then they build something incredible. And he goes, ah, that, me, that brought me great, great meaning. Why? Because he's doing Genesis 1 in an incredible, awesome way. You, you'll get artists. What do they do? They take the chaos of colors or musical notes or um, painting, whatever it is, and then they put those things together to create out of raw, chaotic stuff, beauty, order, songs, music, poetry, stories. And they say, oh, that bring me, brought me great meaning, right? Builders. Builders take raw, chaotic land full of blackberries and full of poison oak and full of marijuana, and they clear it. <laughs> and then they build on that land with 
raw material like stone and lumber and iron. And then they create a little Eden for a family to inhabit. And they go, oh, that's awesome. It's Genesis 1 stuff that just, oh, that feels good. Teachers, God bless you, teachers. Next Tuesday, God bless you, teachers. Oh, man. Right? You bring in these unruly third graders and and they're in your class and you've got 30 of them in this little room and, and they've all got bad breath and you're like, ah! And you start to walk with them and talk with them and order them and, and, and help them to sit in their seat for the whole class and slowly, day after day after day, you begin to create something in them that's beautiful. And they get a vision, yeah. And they get a vision for what life is possible. What's out there? And it's beautiful, right? And you say, ah, oh, that brings me meaning. Counselors, you bring in a disordered brain and a disordered life and a disordered person, and then through a process of day after day of helping and walking with them, they begin to order their life in such a way and they begin to live brilliantly. How cool is that? Doctors, messed up bones or messed up flesh or messed up teeth or messed up eyes. You're able to, hey, let me help you. Let me bring beauty out of this disorder. And you say, ah, that is awesome. Financial planners. Yeah. People come in disordered, right? They can't make their ends meet. They're always spending too much. And a financial planner gives that family a budget. I hate budgets. Then you'll enjoy bankruptcy. Take your choice, (laughs) right? And you order people, and all of a sudden, oh, I can do this. I've now got money to do other things that I really want to do. Oh, thank you, right? I can go on and on and on. Coaches, five ego-full kids that just want their own glory for themselves, or 11 ego-filled kids that want glory for themselves, and you begin to walk with them and talk with them and explain to them, hey, this thing that can happen when you trust these other guys on your team, these other gals on your team, you build this thing called teamwork. And it's brilliant. They get more than they could ever get by themselves. And all of a sudden they go, wow, the light turns on. Community, people, yes. It's exactly what Genesis 1 is. And what you see is the Bible begins with that. God's spirit works. Order out of chaos. Light out of darkness. Life out of voidness. That's how it begins, okay? So the next time you see God's Spirit, it's the very first time someone is described as having God's Spirit. And his name is Joseph. So flip forward to Genesis 41, verse 38. Joseph has been in prison, treated unfairly. Pharaoh has these nightmares. Skinny cows eating fat cows, skinny corn eating fat corn. He can't figure it out. Joseph comes, translates them, gives a plan to save the nation, and then here's Pharaoh's response, verse 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Ruach Elohim. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you this, 
There is none so discerning as wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Joseph, first man who is described as having God's spirit. What is Joseph's occupation? Now he's a politician, which may be the same as a prisoner. Right? He's a politician. The first man in Scripture that has said, you have God's spirit as a politician. How crazy is that? You have a godly, honest, hardworking politician who does not touch the ladies. Add that to your list of biblical miracles, okay? It's amazing. He's raised up to rule and order people. Who is the first person in the Bible that God directly says, I'm filling him with my spirit? Turn to Exodus 31. His name is Bezalel. Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work stones in every craft. What's Bezalel? He's a construction foreman. Right? The first guy, white-collar politician. Second guy, blue-collar construction foreman. If I would have begun this message by saying, who's the man, who's the woman God uses? What occupation would you have thought of? Pastor, missionary maybe? Who would have thought of? God uses politicians and excavator operators. That's the number one and number two, right? Right? This is te- the Bible is telling us something when it begins this way, when it's saying, hey, look at this, watch this. Watch this. The first two guys are not going to be the ones you think. It's going to be a politician and a construction worker. I love that. I was an engineer for about six years before becoming a pastor. And At 24, I got a job, and my job was in a high-tech kind of industry, particle counters. And they gave me the task, which was way above my head, design a particle counter. All right? So I start looking into particle counters. Like, there's a lot of dust right now in the air. Do you know that? So if you took just a one-foot-by-one-foot cube of air, there's about 100,000 particles in there. And the ones we were trying to measure are 0.3 microns. So... A human hair is about 100 microns. It's 300 times smaller of a diameter. Very, very small. You got lasers and lenses and all this stuff, right? The other thing I found out was this. The majority of indoor air, guess what it's made up of? Dead skin cells. Yes. Yours, your animals, the person that lived in the house before you, the person that lived in the house before them, Dead skin cells. All of us are cannibals. Breathe deep. (sighs) 
Aren't you glad we have these windows open? Yeah. Trying to keep you guys from being cannibals. All right, so I'm working on this particle counter, and I got it to 90%, but there's these specifications you have to meet, signal-to-noise ratio, all this stuff. And I couldn't get it past there. And I'm working, and I'm reading, and I'm studying, and I'm testing, and I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I can't get it past. It's, it's not going to fly. No one's going to buy it. And, and I came to the end of myself. And this one day, I just said, God, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what's wrong. I can't figure this out. Help me. And that night, I'm laying in my bed, and I'm looking up at the ceiling, and you know how your brain is just rolling. All of a sudden, there was this, the, the, the focal length of this lens was wrong. I went, oh, my goodness. Went back the next day. That was it. Passed it. What happened? God's spirit. God's spirit in an ordinary occupation. Not pastoring, not missionary, not studying the Bible. Not, um, not, it was an ordinary occupation. See, I think we miss something when we talk about the working of God's spirit because we begin, begin to limit it to a certain thing. Acts chapter two, 1 Corinthians, whatever. No way. We have this, I call it the long shadow of church history that sometimes needs to be removed. And there's a 700 shadow, 700 year old shadow, and it's based on this this idea that life is a two-story building. That the top story is prayer, fasting, reading your Bible, all important things. And that the bottom story is the mundane stuff, your work, dishes, diapers, right? And you got to get through the bottom story to get to the really important things on the top story. It's called the sacred, secular divide. And I hate it. I think it's completely wrong. I think it misses the entirety of Scripture. It makes most of your life useless filler for little glimpses of top story stuff. No way. I think one of the most spiritual activities a person can ever do is to raise children and change their diapers. Moms, praise God for you. You're doing the most spiritual work ever. Yeah. And dads, if you don't believe me, switch jobs for a month. You'll be praying for the power of God's spirit. Help me with these creatures. Right? So we start to do disservice to what people are doing. And it's wrong. It's not right. In fact, I don't think the Bible teaches a two-story house for life. The Bible says life is like a tent. Ever seen a two-story tent? Yeah, they don't work. It's one story. It's all the same. It's mixed together. There's no sacred. There's no secular. And that's what you start seeing about God's spirit as you just simply read the Old Testament. Chaos to order. Darkness to light. Lifelessness to life. That's what you see. Politician. Excavator operator. And if I was to keep going, there's the next class of people that God's spirit fills. Read the book of Judges. Othniel filled with the God's spirit. Jephthah filled with God's spirit. Gideon filled with God's spirit. Samson filled with God's spirit. What are all those guys? They're warriors. What had happened in Judges was evil groups had come in and subdued the Israelites and put them to slavery. And then God would raise up an Othniel, a Jephthah, a Samson, a Gideon, to set his people free, to push back against that evil, push back against that darkness, and 
create a good place for his people to live. It was kicking out the drug dealers and the prostitutes, or the drug dealers and the pimps, getting them out of there so that his people could live in shalom. And I think you see that throughout the Bible, that God's spirit is a protective spirit. That's what he does. So there's this great text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 that says that, that there's this spirit of lawlessness right now. Ever felt that before? I have. And I say this all the time, and I'll repeat it. We believe life is a playground when the Bible screams it's a battleground. That there are evil forces that want to steal and want to kill and want to destroy. That want to take the order of our life and move it to chaos. Look at anybody that's on drugs. That's exactly what happened to them. They went from an ordered life to chaos. They want to take the life and that abundant that God has given to us and kill it. They want to take light and turn, out, turn it off, bring us into darkness. And that's what you see. So the, the lawlessness is already at work, but there's a power. It's a personal pronoun. He, right now, is holding that evil back. Do we know the power of the protection of God's spirit in our world? Why aren't we Mad Max? Why aren't we Book of, Book of Eli? Why hasn't culture crumbled to that level? Because it should have. God's spirit. People who have watched too much news will come up to me and say, Matt, can you believe how bad things are? I always respond, I can't believe they're not worse. I know human people, and the more I learn about humans, the worse they are. There is something else holding this thing together, and it is the power of God's spirit. And you begin to see that in scripture. And I'm thankful that God has raised up protectors Firemen, policemen, whatever it is. People that are saying, no, not in my neighborhood. Uh-uh. We'll push back against that. We'll protect people. We'll defend widows and orphans with our own lives. Love that. Okay? So here's my point in all this. My point is this. And we'll do a couple more on God's spirit because they're that big. When you look at the Old Testament, it's not your typical, okay, here's how the Holy Spirit works, right? Gives me goosebumps gives me this or, you know, whatever, speaks through me. When you look at the Old Testament, there's this mixture of secular and and sacred, ministry and industry. They're just absolutely squeezed together. There's no difference. God's spirit, it's his presence in people moving the story of redemption forward. That's what it is. And so you see that in your own life. That God's spirit begins to work on you and speak to you and move you personally forward into more light and more life and more love out of chaos into order. And then he says, okay, Matt, now that you're doing better, take my life, take my love, take my light and move out with it into the rest of the world. That's what God's spirit does over and over and over again. And I love that. Does it as an excavator? Whatever it is. That God does that with you and me. Ordinary, normal people filled with the Spirit to be something extraordinary. So I've thought about this for a while. I don't know if I'll do it. But in some churches, they have like a missionary wall that they support. You know, it's got the pictures of the missionaries like in Mongolia or Uganda or wherever it is. And there's like, hey, these are the missionaries we support. You ever seen those? Okay. So I thought about having a missionary wall here but saying, missionaries, we support, and then underneath it, just a big, giant mirror. 
You. You're the missionary. Me. I'm the missionary, right? It's not some people out there that we outsource this to. No. God's Spirit grabs people and He sends out pastors and elders, yeah, but He also sends out doctors and dentists and mechanics and teachers and policemen and you name it, you and I, moving forward, partnering with Him like an Othniel, like a Joseph, like a Bezalel to bring order out of chaos, to bring light into darkness, to bring light where there is no life. That's what we're supposed to do. So if you're saying, man, my workplace is dark, there's no intelligent life there, and it's chaotic. (laughs) Perfect. Good. You're in the right spot, man. (laughs) Yeah, people hate that answer. They're like, what? You're supposed to tell me to get out of there. Huh? Man, you're perfect. That's where you're supposed to be, right? And I think we get caught up when it comes to God's spirit. People always say, well, I'm just praying to God's spirit that he'll tell me what to do. Like, I just don't know what to do. I want God's guidance. I just want a spirit to guide me. My answer to people like that is this. It's 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat, whether you drink, in whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That I think God is much less concerned about the exact thing we're doing, like what job should I take or what house should I live in or what place should I move to or, you know, what skills should I get? I think he's much less concerned with all those things. What God is saying is, can I use you when you get there? When you get that education, that job, can I use you when you get there? When you buy that house that you love so much, can I use that house for foster care or for safe families or for community groups? Can can I use the house? Can I use you when you get there? Ordinary, doing the extraordinary. No sacred, no secular divide. Can I just use you? I want you to use you when I get there. I think there's one group, maybe more than any other group that seems to get this. It's believing athletes. Right, remember Tim Tebow? Gotta love Tim Tebow. Remember what he'd do after he threw a touchdown? Right, what's that called? Tebowing, right? What's he doing in that moment? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And whatever you do, give glory to God. Okay, my DNA, my opportunities, all these things were orchestrated by God. Thank you, God. We need a whole lot more of that. Whole lot more. So excavator operator, tomorrow morning, when you excavate and you make a beautiful house pad that's level, you get off that excavator and you just get down and go. (laughs) Right? Or some athletes point to the sky. Elmer's pancake dude. When you cook a perfect four-inch round golden pancake, it is spatula to the sky. Yes. (laughs) Plumber, when you fix that leak and charge a fair price, you stand up, pull up your pants, and you put a wrench to the sky. Mechanics, when you fix only the parts that are broken... Crescent wrench. Framers, when you frame up that wall and it's perfect, it's hammer time. I'm joking, but I'm not. It's 1 Corinthians 10 31, which is this long argument that ends hey, it doesn't matter what you do, eat or drink or whatever you're doing, make sure that you're doing it to the glory of God. Can I use you when you get there? Will you be turning the lights on for people? 
Will you be salt there? Will you be usable there? Or are you going to fall for the persecution that we all fear in America? You know the greatest persecution in America? You know what it is? Embarrassment. God, don't embarrass me here. Do not embarrass me. Don't make me talk that way. Don't make me wear that shirt. Don't make me put a fish on the back of my car. Don't embarrass me. Other people are dying for their faith. We're embarrassed of our faith. God's saying, can I use you when you get there? Can I use you when I get there? Will you push forward the work of redemption? Okay? So I've said this many times. Like, what we do here is important. But if we think about it, this is halftime. This is a locker room and this is halftime. And we come in here and we get, ah, sit down and refresh and we got a great view and it's awesome. We sing songs, our hearts are lifted up. Hopefully we learn a little bit more about the enemy that's out there. We get a new play from the coach, if you would. But then when halftime's over, guess what we do? We put our helmets on and we play the game out there because that's where it happens. It happens in homes and in workplaces. It happens as you're driving your car. It happens in grocery stores and in parking lots. It happens out there. We put our helmets on and we go back to play the game of life where it's played, out there on the field. That's what we do. And God's spirit just says, can I use you? Because I will. Well, Matt, how do you get used? Here's what I do, and I'm done. Here's what I do. I pray this prayer all the time. And it says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And I want to follow you by being a good husband to charity. And I want to follow you by being a good dad to Carissa and Bella and Gabri and Elijah and Myron. And for a season, the new person we have, Kylie. And I want to follow you by being a good pastor for Edgewater, for what's needed here. I want to follow you by being a good citizen to the city that I love, Grants Pass. And I want to follow you by being an ambassador of your kingdom wherever I go. And I know I need your spirit, so fill me this morning and empower me. Amen. And then I walk out and I listen and I obey. And it's amazing to me what God's spirit will whisper into my heart that I'm supposed to be doing. Just simple it's not complicated. Matt, do this for your wife. Matt, send this text to your daughter. Matt, tell this person that. It's simple, but it's brilliant, and it's powerful, and it's light, and it's life, and it's love. And if we have a bunch of people doing that, darkness flees. That's what happens. Brilliantly, simply. We get ears to hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church, Revelation 2 and 3. We tune the radio in, if you would. Instead of static and chaos, we start to hear, oh, yes. So Jesus today, the harvest is plentiful. We pray to the Lord of the harvest that you would send out workers today. Every believer in you is a missionary sent to a mission field, ready for a harvest. Send us, we pray. Use us where we go. May we bring order to chaos, light to darkness, life to those that are under the sentence of death. 
May we be missionaries. May we be those that are seeing your kingdom come and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven, in our cities. And we ask this in your name. Amen.